Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Grab them, turn to Exodus chapter 13. Maybe it's on your device. Exodus chapter 13. We're moving right along through it. Thanks, Mallory. For those of you who don't know, last week uh, the band and team who sang Mallory wrote all those parts for us. So thank you for doing that. She is gifted, talented, and 12 of us appreciate it, Mallory. <clears throat> all right. We're back in the book of Exodus. If you're here for your second time, you were here last week at Easter, you'll notice that we have less chairs out. Maybe that makes you feel better about being here, uh, and that's totally fine. Uh, we're, we're thrilled that you would come back um, after last week to study some more. We're in the book of Exodus. We're gonna study this um, throughout the bulk of the year. I've done a little uh, market research, and what I've learned is that you crazy people want to keep studying Exodus through the summer instead of taking a break, so we're gonna keep going through Exodus. We're not gonna stop in the summer. We're Four of us like it. So we're gonna go right through it. We're, go, we're just gonna keep, we're gonna go as far, as long as we need to go and get through the book of Exodus together. And so um, if you wanna change your summer plans, you know, not go on vacation because you wanna be here, totally fine, I get it. Uh, but we're gonna be in Exodus chapter 13 this morning. We looked at the Passover last week. Um, so what I wanna do, this will be pretty simple for us here this morning. I just wanna look at Exodus chapter 13 we're gonna do a little bit in 12 to set some context, but that's the only scripture we're gonna use. So that's all you need to know for this morning. Um, I'm gonna read through Exodus 13, verses one through 16. And you're gonna notice that it feels like you've heard all of this before, if you've paid attention. And even in reading it, you're gonna feel like, didn't we just read that? Yes, we did just read that. There's a couple distinct uh, sections here in this passage, but I wanna put it all in context. And then I feel like this might be more of an application-based message for us here this morning. So let's just read it. Exodus chapter 13. We're gonna begin in verse one. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate. You can circle that, highlight that word. We'll come back to it. Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast is mine. Then verse three. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord." Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand, as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart, circle that, highlight that phrase, set apart, to the Lord all that first opens the womb, 
All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among you, among your sons, you shall redeem. And when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man, and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So Meredith and I, we have three kids, and um, I've, I've learned that I, I say some things in parenting that I never thought would come out of my mouth. Any other parents feel the same way? I, I cannot believe the things I have to tell my kids. I cannot believe it. Uh, things like, uh, don't, don't put your hand in the toilet, things like that. Don't lick that, don't touch that. Anybody else have these similar things? Things like, the couch is not a trampoline. Please don't jump on our furniture. That's not what that's made for. Um, don't put that Skittle in your brother's nose. Like that kind of thing I have to say repeatedly to my kids. Anybody else relate to that? Then there are certain things uh, that I have to say, that, that does not go in your mouth. That should never go in your mouth. Please don't do that ever again. One of my least favorite things to say is, do not lick that. Those of us who have sons, you understand? And then it's, and don't smell it. You don't have to smell that. What, I, don't, I don't get the obsession. Men, we do it too. You just have to smell it. You gotta know. I gotta know. At one point, um, one of our children, I won't tell you which, what, his, what his name is, but he's the oldest. Uh, he, um, <laughs> he was two, this is about 10 years ago. And um, we were in Savannah at the time and just, I don't know if you remember what it was like when it was just you and your spouse and one kid. Do you remember that feeling? Where you're like, this is, this is great. Like, I feel like um, we can have double coverage. I feel like we're fine now. Then you keep having more. You're like, I don't, why, why? What did we do? But there's, so there's this one. And so we're eating popcorn. It's just a movie night, the three of us. And we're watching a movie, probably some ridiculous Curious George movie. And we're eating it and we're eating popcorn. And it gets down to the bottom where it's just the kernels. And for some reason, kids love the popcorn kernels. They love them. But at this point, our oldest son, who will go unnamed, uh, took the popcorn kernel and instead of putting it in his mouth, stuck it in his nostril, the popcorn kernel. And I looked down at him and there's just look on his face like, I don't know what I just did. And I, I don't know how to get out of what just happened. And I don't know how to tell you what happened without you freaking out. And so I look at him. And I say, did you just put a popcorn kernel up your nose? And my two-year-old just stares at me like, I don't know if I should answer this question. And he, he nods his head. Like, All right. Kent, did you try to get it out? Which just means now it's in his brain at this point. It's just a, <laughs> it's just popcorn brain. So sweet Meredith's nervous because she's the mom and she loves our kids. And I'm like, this is, what are we gonna do? This is amazing. And so she's like, let's just, let's just pack up and we'll go to urgent care and we'll get them to tweeze it out or something. And I'm like, let me just, let me Google it first. Let me just figure out, like, come on, we got technology. So uh, I watched MacGyver. I think I can figure this out from here. <laughs> so I Google it and it tells me all, all you have to do, all you've got to do is just close the open nostril and then blow gently into his mouth. I don't need any emails telling me how dangerous this was. It's fine. 
And so in my head, I was like, oh yeah, I can totally do that. And then it came the moment where I have to put my lips on my two-year-old son's mouth. And I realized, I'm not sure I want to be doing this right now. But I do because I love him and I'm a hero. Darn it, I'm just a hero. And so that's what I did. And I blew into his mouth and I heard a sound, but I could not find the kernel anywhere. And he's breathing like, oh, okay, it's gone somewhere. And Meredith's just staring at me. And there's a snotty popcorn kernel right on my cheek. I mean, right here. Not all heroes wear capes, guys. But it was that moment when you, you have to tell your kids, like, that's not what that's used for. Like, that's, that's not what that is. That's not how that works. That's not what that's for. So we all have those moments. So here's kind of what's happening here in Scripture. God has miraculously delivered his people from slavery in Egypt through a mighty hand, just a 10 mighty acts of God over the gods of the Egyptians, over Pharaoh himself, and he's delivered them. And now they're about to make this journey from slavery in Egypt to the promised land, the land God had promised them. Uh, in Exodus, it's referred to as the land flowing with milk and honey. I mean, everything they could ever want is there. But there's this moment where God has to tell them, do not stick popcorn kernels up your nose. The couch is not a trampoline. It's not what that's used for. So to put all this in context, let's go back to Exodus chapter 12. We're gonna start in verse 33. Passover has happened. The angel of death has passed over the homes who had the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. The firstborn of those families has been saved. The firstborn of other families has been has died in the middle of the night. Pharaoh's son himself has died. Firstborn of livestock has died. And you have to understand the firstborn is important. And I know that because I'm a firstborn, uh, but my, kid, my son, my daughters, my sisters don't know that, but I know how important I am. But the Bible, here's how important the firstborn was. The firstborn, um, it wasn't just about that son. This was about the future. The firstborn son was the one to carry on the lineage. If, particularly if there's a royalty, he would take the throne, he would take the name, he would be the one responsible uh, for the care of the family should the parents pass away. This is important. And so when God takes the firstborn out of Egypt, he's not just, which is already bad enough to take sons, but what he's done now is he's essentially decimated any future hope Egypt has at being Egypt again. And we see that even today. They're no longer who they were. So God does that, but then we didn't read this last week. So let's look at it. Exodus 12, verse 33. The Egyptians, this is the middle of the night, were urgent with the people, the Israelites, to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people, the Israelites, took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks and on their shoulders. And the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. For they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they had let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. So this is important. This will come up again later in the wilderness, but this is important. They now walk out, slaves, they now walk out with baskets load full, trailers full, silver and gold and precious stones. I mean, Anything they asked for, God had given the Israelites favor with the Egyptians. Anything they asked for, they got. And now the Egyptians who are used to worshiping angry gods think, man, if this is how your God is, I'll give you whatever you want. 
So they end up with all of this plus a bunch of livestock. And they were slaves. They had nothing. And now they're leaving with all of this. So that's important for us moving forward. Verse 37, the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth. Now Sukkoth is, um, it would later, we would know it as a booth, like the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. Sukkoth was a place where um, Jacob built a tent of rest after he and his brother Esau had made up. So Sukkoth represents rest. It represents rejuvenation. So they're leaving Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Now, if you're like me, you've got an image in your mind of what this looks like, what the Exodus looks like, and particularly when you get to the Red Sea. Now, I picture in my mind, I don't know, 3,000 people walking through the Red Sea, like, and that feels like a lot to me. I feel like may, maybe it's just 50 people. That's in my mind. This is about 2 million people. 2 million people. So the Bible says in haste, among those 2 million people, we all know some people who don't do anything in haste. Don't you know them? I mean, the house could be on fire. They're like, I mean, I'll get there. It's fine. But in haste, so 2 million people, as fast as you can move 2 million people, are moving out. This all started with Joseph's family back in Genesis. And now it's up to 2 million Israelites leaving. Verse 38. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. Now, the mixed multitude, what that refers to is they're not all Israelites. Some of them are probably Egyptians who have seen, the fear, seen who God is and begun to follow him. What we're gonna see later in Exodus is some of these people um, who aren't devout, God-fearing people start to cause some problems in the camp of the Israelites. But this is a mixed multitude of people. 39, and they baked unleavened cakes of dough they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord, now host is a Hebrew word for army regiments. So now God's just not just calling them people, now they're his military. They all went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by the people of Israel throughout all their generations. So all these people are leaving, but they're a group of slaves who are now wealthy. And they're about to experience, for the first time, they're about to experience freedom. Unmitigated freedom actually turns into chaos. Those of us who have teenagers understand they want freedom. But what we keep trying to tell them is, no, you don't. Not the freedom you think you want. I don't know what college was like for you, uh, but for me, college had a lot to do with Columbia House CDs. Anybody else? Anybody else? Subscription to Columbia House? Because I was like, this is amazing. I just fill out this card and I get CDs sent to me every month. This is amazing. Oh, a CD, by the way, it was music. It was played on a, it's fine. So we, right, and I, I mean, I don't know how many I had. They were all Christian, so don't worry about, I mean, I'm fine. It's, it's, it was like Michael W. Smith and Stephen Curtis Chapman and whatever else and Run DMC. But other way, otherwise, Beastie Boys, other, other than that, it was fine. So um, then what happens is, uh, 
maybe you, like me, you get a credit card when you turn 18 because apparently that's how you become an adult. And 18 year olds, they really know how to manage money. And so they're really good at it. And so credit card company, companies love them because um, they make a lot of money off of them because they're terrible and they get all the interest. So when we first experience freedom, but we haven't had it before, it just turns into unmitigated chaos. It's just chaos for all of us. For the first time you experience that you don't have to eat whatever mama made and put on the table. You can go get whatever you want. It costs money, but it's, your, it's not your money, it's fine. You can go, right? It's just free on this credit card. Then you find yourselves in debt and then you have to go to Dave Ramsey and then Ray Koss is here to help you get out of debt, all that stuff. But these Israelites are now about to step into freedom. And so God has this moment with them where he's gotten the Israelites out of Egypt and now he has to get the Egypt out of the Israelites. I mean, they've just now been set free. They've been worshiping the false gods of Egypt, we learn later in the Old Testament. They are a people who have a victim mentality. Everyone is to blame except for themselves. They are experienced with suffering. All they know is suffering. All they know is a scarcity mentality. And you've, we've seen them, right? We've seen the pro athletes who become millionaires overnight. And then by the end of their career, they're back in bankruptcy. We've seen the lottery winners. We've seen all of it. When we jump immediately from slavery to freedom, we don't know how to handle this kind of freedom. So God in his grace is now going to work with the Israelites to get the Egypt out of them. So let's go back to chapter 13 and notice how God's going to do this. Here's how God is going to manage their freedom for them, that they might actually be free. Verse one, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. This word consecrate means to set apart or to make holy or make distinct. To consecrate is to set apart. Some of your translations say sanctify. It means the same thing. It means to set them apart. So this is immediately after their freedom. And then God says, by the way, I'm gonna need your firstborn. They're like, I thought you just, didn't you just save the firstborn? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I need you to set that apart for me. I need you to sanctify him. Give me all the firstborn. Whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man, both of man and of beast is mine. They're barely free. And God begins with this. So I don't know what that makes you think about God. Maybe it feels like he just kind of did a little bait and switch on you. Like he set you free. Oh, and by the way, you're gonna have to go to church every week. Maybe that, I don't know what it feels like for you. But he now asked them to set the firstborn apart for an intended purpose, to set them apart for an intended purpose. Don't put popcorn kernels up your nose. The couch is not a trampoline. This is what God is saying to his people. Now, before we go any further, let me say this, because I think there's a false teaching that goes around about this, and I think it's super detrimental to our hearts. This is not God saying, you owe me for setting you free. This is not God saying, um, now you're in debt to me. Now, now I am your slave master. That's not what he's saying. I think many of us grew up in Christian traditions where we felt like we owed God something because he gave us salvation. Well, the least I could do, or well, I owe this to him. No, you don't. That's not scripture. If I gave you a gift and said, oh, happy birthday, 
here, I gave you this gift, that'll be $25. That's not a gift. That's a wage. That's something you paid for. Your salvation is free for you. Paid for, complete and full, by the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins in full. You owe God nothing. But by grace, we get to give God everything. So just do not misinterpret this as God saying, well, I set you free, now you owe me. That's not God. What God is saying, I've set you free and I love you. Let me show you how to be free. Let me show you what freedom actually looks like. So verse three, now he's gonna tell them what it looks like to consecrate. Verse three, Moses now says to the people, from God to Moses, now Moses speaks to the people and he says, remember this day in which you came out of, from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This word remember is important for us because here's what God needs his people to remember. They didn't set themselves free, he set them free. They didn't do anything. Read back through the plagues. What did they do? God did it all. God rescued, God delivered, God set them free. Well, they would say things like, well, I mean, I, mean, at least I had to put the blood on the doorposts, okay. God sets you free. And so God needs his people to remember they didn't do it. He did it. He alone is worthy. He alone has delivered. Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand, the Lord, Yahweh, brought you out from this place. No unleavened bread shall be eaten. So in order to remember this, don't eat unleavened bread. Then it gets more specific. Verse four. Today, in the month of Abib, Abib um, would have been sometime between March and April. It's the season of the first harvest in Egypt. This will always be something for you. This is when you are going out. Verse five. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So God's gonna bring them to Canaan and he gave them the promised land. The problem with the promised land is that it's already occupied by these people. And so while God has given it to them, there's already ideology happening in Canaan. There's already false God worship happening in Canaan. There's already sexual promiscuity happening in Canaan. There's already disrespect of women happening in Canaan. And so what God is saying is I've given you this land, but you need to understand when you get there, it's not going to be what you think it's going to be. When you get there, he says, this land that he swore to your fathers to give to you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. In other words, when you get there, when you get in the land, you keep doing what I've asked you to do. Now, look at how God describes the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is a phrase, kind of a euphemism for prosperity. When you get into Canaan, you're gonna have access to things you've never had access to before. You're going to experience prosperity like you've never experienced before. You're gonna experience success and rest like you've never experienced before. And it's one thing to eat unleavened bread one time because you have to in order to save someone or, or something like that. It's a whole other thing to eat unleavened bread when you have a lot of other choices around. Right? It's, it's one thing to go to church because mama makes you go to church. It's a whole other thing when you're an adult to decide you're going to lead your family well. 
and be part of a local church. It's one thing, it's one thing to watch what you listen to and watch what you watch because there's grounding and restriction on the line from daddy. It's a whole other thing when you're a grown up to watch what you listen to and watch what you watch to guard your own heart and your own soul. So God is telling the people, when you get in there, it's not going to be like it was in Egypt. And I'm going to ask you to intentionally fast from what there is available to you, that you might remember that I'm the one who set you free from slavery in Egypt. It's a whole other thing when you have options. Verse six of chapter 13. Seven days you shall eat the unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. You catching up? You catching what God's saying here? Like he's repeatedly saying, seven days, no unleavened bread. Seven days, no unleavened bread. Oh, by the way, no leaven. It's like, I think, I think we get it, but God knows we don't get it, so he's gotta keep saying it until we think we got it. Verse eight, then he says, you shall tell your son on that day. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. So a couple things here in verse eight. First is this, the kids ask questions that no adult would ever ask. And we read this, and we're gonna see it later, that when your son asks, and maybe in your mind you think of this super polite kid, like, hey, father, may I have a word with you? Would you help me to understand the unleavened bread that I love? I just need to understand why. If you have, if you have kids, you understand that's not how the questions are asked. The question is, why are we doing this? This again? Where are the, where are the rolls? I hate this. Can I have macaroni instead? This, I don't like this at all. I don't like anything you've made. I don't think, like anything you've spent two hours making for me for dinner. Can you, just, can you just microwave that blue box of macaroni? That would be better for me. So this, he says, there's sons now, you gotta tell them this. But notice what he says. This is how you should tell your son. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. He's not asking them to give a theological dissertation. What he's saying is, tell your story. Tell your son, when, when you do this, when you commemorate this with this Passover, with this unleavened bread, this feast of unleavened bread, and your son asks why you do it, I want you to tell him something that you remember. Tell him about your experience in it. More on that later. Verse nine. It shall be to you a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. This idea of a sign on your hand, a memorial between your eyes, we'll read it later as frontlets. This will come back up in Deuteronomy when we talk about the Shema, the prayer. This idea continues throughout the Old Testament. The idea is that this story, your story, your story of salvation, the story of the Exodus should be so apparent to you that you literally see it and think about it every day. And the places he's asked them to remember it are on the forehead, and that's supposed to be reminiscent then of the mind. So it's ideology, the ways that you think. Let this affect the way you think and your hands, the things that you do. Let this story, let this Exodus be so pronounced in your life let it be such a moment in your life that it literally affects the way you think and the things that you do. Now, the Pharisees would take this a step farther and they would put what's called phylacteries, leather boxes, literally on their foreheads, filled with rolled up scripture. They would tie on their foreheads and they would tie things on their wrists as well at particular times of the year. 
And Jesus comes around and Jesus is like, I, that's, I don't think that's what, that's not what we meant. Like that's, that's hideous. That's not what we were talking about. And the point he makes to the Pharisees is on the outside, you look like you're a godly person, but your heart isn't following suit. This is not about that. This is about the way we think and the things that we do. Do this in such a way that the Feast of Unleavened Bread and its reminders should affect your thinking and your doing. So let me just ask you this question. We celebrated the resurrection of Jesus seven days ago. How's your week been? Has your week been lived in such a way that the resurrection of Jesus has affected the way you've thought about your boss this week? The way you've thought about your spouse or your in-laws? Has it affected the things that you've done this week? That's what God is telling the people of Israel. This needs to be such an, such an immense thing in your life that it affects everything about you. Then verse 10, you shall keep, therefore, you shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. You need to do this every year. This needs to be a reminder every year for you. So again, we just had Easter. Just curious how that's gone for us. Now, if you're like me, it's been rough. It's been rough. I haven't kept the resurrection on my mind and in my hands. I haven't. Not in the way that I've uh, talked to my kids and talked to my wife. I haven't. Now, it's not like we have kids um, asking questions. Oh, our kids ask questions at Easter like, Father, why, why do we dye these eggs? And I say, I don't, because Jesus died. And that's, I don't know. I don't know why we do this. So at this point now, at the end of verse 10, we know that annually should be a feast to commemorate what has just happened here. But we still haven't talked much about the sanctification, the consecration from verse two. So now look at verse 11. Now, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart. That's the same word from verse two. Consecrate, sanctify, set apart for its intended purpose. To the Lord, all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. So now there's a shift. This isn't just annual. This is anytime there's new life. We can read it as anytime you step into a new season, you are to remember. You are to sanctify, consecrate, and commemorate. Anytime there's a new season, there's a milestone. There's new birth, whether it's the birth of a, of a child or the birth of a ram. This should be a reminder to you. Verse 13, every firstborn of a donkey, depending on whether or not you read King James, that says something completely different. You shall redeem, so now the word is redeem, to buy back. You shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Now a donkey is not like a lamb, right? Like I, I don't read any kids' books about sweet, cuddly donkeys. Donkeys um, are unclean unto the Lord. So the, in no place in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, does God ask for a donkey sacrifice. That never happens. Because a donkey is considered an unclean animal. But the donkey is a useful animal. We have cars, they had donkeys. So donkeys were very useful and with, as far as uh, working in the field and then traveling. So what God says is, I'm not asking for you to sacrifice a donkey to me. I don't want the donkey but you can redeem the donkey. You can take what is unclean and you can make it clean through the shed blood of a lamb. You can actually make something unclean. You can make it clean. This is a, a useful thing. 
but it still needs to be set apart, but there is a cost to it. So not necessarily a holy thing, the donkey, but a useful thing. And God says, all right, that's fine as long as you set it apart through the blood of a lamb. You can buy it back. You can buy it back for use. What we learn here is that even unclean things can be redeemed, but it does cost something. Continuing in verse 13, every firstborn of man among your sons, you shall redeem. Notice God doesn't say to sacrifice, but to redeem, to buy them back. In the New Testament, Mary and Joseph, after the birth of Jesus, make their way into the temple to offer the sacrifice of the firstborn. They give two turtle doves. What's being said in this moment is, he is yours, and I'm going to rent him for a season. In fact, Jesus, again, has done, Mary and Joseph does the very same thing with Jesus in the New Testament. Then verse 14. And when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? Again, I'm sure very polite. You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man, the firstborn of animals. Therefore, or because of that, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn sons of my sons I redeem. So what you're seeing here is that the kids are going to ask questions, parents. You don't have to have kids for very long to understand that's true. They're always gonna ask questions. But I think what has to happen for us in 2022 is that we need better answers for our kids than we're giving them. We need better answers about why we celebrate this. Why, why do we celebrate Easter? Why do we celebrate Christmas? Why do we go to church? Why do we read the Bible? Why do we, why do we give 10% of our income to the church? Why, why do we do that? And if all we can muster up is the classic, because I said so, I think we're doing our kids a great disservice or because that's just what we do, or uh, because we're in the South, because we're part of a church. If that's, if that's all we have, I think we're missing it. Notice what they're told to answer uh, their kids with. First is their own personal experience. This is when God set me free from slavery in Egypt. But now they do have some understanding of what actually happened in verse 15. This is what God did. There was a time when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let his people go and then God set us free. So that's why we do what we do. Parents, I think we need a better understanding of why we do what we do. And I love you, but it's not gonna happen just from coming to church for an hour and a half on a Sunday. And your kids need a better understanding because the world is calling, college is calling, And if all they know is because, well, that's just what we do, well, that's just not what they're going to do. Why? What does this mean? Then verse 16, again, it shall be a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. If you're taking notes and you wanna dig a bit further, read Revelation chapter 13, verse 16 and compare it to this verse. So then the question for us now is, well, what do we do? 
right? So what do we do with all of this? How do we interpret scripture? What do we do with this kind of scripture? Well, here's the first thing that I think needs to be glaringly obvious to us. The story of the Exodus is our story as followers of Jesus. This is our story. Both in heritage, that the Christian faith, we are here today because of Jews. That's why we're here today. That Judaism has brought us, has bridged us to this place. And Paul would say that we Gentiles, we have been brought into, we've been grafted into the faith of the Jews. We've been grafted into the family of God. So that's part of it. It's our story spiritually because we too were slaves. And by the blood of a perfect spotless lamb, we have been set free from our slavery. That's our story. That's why it's important for us today. So like when God delivers his people from slavery in Egypt and he has this moment with them before they even get to Canaan, before they get to the promised land and he has to get the Egypt out of them, here's where we need to find ourselves as followers of Jesus. Yes, we've been granted salvation and the next step is sanctification. That we would set our lives apart, that we would make a distinction between the holy and the common. That's what we must do. This is our journey this process of becoming set apart. So we then move, according to chapter 13, verse two of Exodus, to consecration. What do we set apart? Because the truth is, as followers of Jesus, many of us have accepted salvation, and yet we aren't walking towards sanctification. We aren't setting ourselves apart. And you know it. You feel it in your bones. You feel the anxiety. You feel the stress. You feel the power of shame and guilt over your life. And it's not because Jesus hasn't set you free by his finished work on the cross. It's because we've stopped moving towards holiness. That's why. And so we then have to take some steps in this direction. We have blended the holy and the common. And we've said things like, well, that's not that bad or at least I'm not like that person, or at least I don't watch those kinds of movies. At least I don't listen to that podcast or that music. We've blended the two and our souls feel it. This sanctification, consecration, is a gift from the God who created our very being and knows how we best function. And what he has said is, I've given you freedom, now let me show you how to walk in it. Do you trust me, is the question. Because the danger for us, like the Israelites, is to think that we had something to do with it, that we set ourselves free. We worked hard. We were in church. And all the, all the while forgetting to remember the God who set us free from slavery. So what do we do? Well, I think first we have to consecrate a few things. We need to set some things apart. Otherwise, we run the danger of thinking we had something to do with it. So first of all, we need to consecrate ourselves. We need to set ourselves apart. And not in a way of holier than thou, but in a way that guards our hearts and our souls. Have you set your mind apart? Have you set your hands apart? Have you set your feet apart? Have you moved in such a way that you can distinguish between the holy and the common. Secondly, I think we need to consecrate our relationships. Whether it's with a spouse or a family member or a boyfriend or a girlfriend, have we handed that back to God and said, do with it as you wish? I'm not yours. I'm not, it's not mine, it's yours. I think we need to consecrate our marriages. 
And sure, you stood before a pastor and he prayed some stuff. And the truth is, you don't remember anything that was said that day. Because your wife looked amazing that day. And that's all that you can remember from that day. And your husband fit in that tux back then. So sure, the pastor said, and he meant them, like he meant them, and he was desperately praying for you. But maybe you need to re-consecrate your marriage to the Lord. It's his, it's not yours. Your spouse is his, not yours. I think there are a lot of us in the room this morning who need to consecrate our kids. We need to set them apart. I think there's two things that we have to do with that. First is we have to remember our kids were God before they were ours. He knit them together in their mother's womb. We didn't. He put their gifts and talents and abilities and struggles, all that's inside of them because of what he has done, not what we have done. And so if there's anyone who knows how to handle your middle schooler, it's God. If there's anyone who knows what to do with your 25-year-old who is no longer the son that you raised, God knows. And we just need to keep handing it to him, handing him to God, handing her to the Lord. We continue to consecrate. Secondly, I think practically, we have to help our kids make decisions that are holy and not common. And we have to be careful with the things we put in their hands. We have to be careful with the weapons that we give them. And we have to guard their hearts for them. We have to sanctify and set them apart. I think we have to sanctify our calendar. Our Monday through, our Sunday through Saturday is not ours, it's his. How does he want us to use it? How would God have us to use our time? And I think we then have to look at these new seasons. What I love about being um, a pastor here at the church is that I know a lot of you. And I know that many of us are walking into new seasons. We're walking into marriage, we're walking into parenting, we're walking into new seasons of singleness. Some of us get, just got brand new jobs. Some of us just got new houses. Some of us have um, gained in-laws. And if we're not careful, we allow the time to just keep rolling and we don't take the time to pause and give those things to the Lord. If we're stepping into a new season. I think we need to consecrate. We need to set that apart. God, this is your promotion. This is your job. This is your new house. This is your season of singleness. And even our houses. So a house in particular is not a holy thing, much like a donkey, but we can redeem it. We can make it a holy thing, but it costs us something with the lamb. So as Mallory comes up just to play behind us, I'm just gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And it's my gut, maybe it's just in my spirit here this morning that for many of us, we've forgotten that it's the Lord, the one true God who has delivered us. And so we've been working our tails off. And all the while, God's saying, would you just give it to me? Would you just give him to me? Just give her to me. Give the marriage to me. Give the finances to me. Give your house to me. Give your schedule and your calendar to me. 
Because for many of us, what's happened is we've made idols out of these things. We made idols out of our kids and out of our marriage and out of our spouse. We've made idols out of our cars and our homes and our bank accounts. And we've been working our tails off to please those false gods while there's a one true God who says, I've given you all of these things, this land flowing with milk and honey. Let me have it. And so I know this is uncomfortable for a lot of us, but I, I am, I'm gonna ask again that if, if you're feeling that, would you come to the altar and pray? You can do it in your seat if you want to. But there's something about when our bodies respond that stirs our hearts and our souls. And so maybe this morning what you've got is you've got a senior in your house who's about to go away to college and you're fretting and you're worried. Maybe you need to come and grab your son or your daughter and bring them up here and just pray over him or her. Just weep. Ask the Lord to protect and guard his heart and his mind and his soul. Maybe you've got a son or a daughter in here that you're just, you don't know what to do with right now. You're not alone. And so maybe instead of trying to white knuckle your way through parenting, we bring our sons and our daughters up. Maybe you bring your wife up, your husband. You just pray, God, it's yours, she's yours. I don't know what you're gonna do. So I wanna invite you to that this morning as a way to walk in freedom. The freedom of thinking you have to have it all figured out. The freedom of thinking you can rearrange your schedule and rearrange your home to make certain things happen. Let's just give it to him. The first step in freedom is sanctification. So I'm gonna pray over us. And if that's you and you, just, you need to come and you need to give the Lord a new season, give the Lord a new job, a promotion, give him the house you just to remind yourself that it's his and not yours. Then you can come forward. God, we thank you. Thank you that you are faithful and true and a loving heavenly father who knows that many of us don't know how to handle freedom. All of us don't. We don't know what to do with it, but you do. And so before we, like the Israelites, before we even step into what we think freedom looks like, you love us enough to meet us there and to shelter our hearts and to guard and protect us. And God, there are some of us in the room today who are stepping into new seasons. And, and the truth is, we have left you on the wayside. Sure, we've done the church attendance thing and, and we, we do our 15 minutes of quiet time in the morning, but the truth is we haven't actually let you have it. We haven't let you have our marriage. We haven't let you have our kids. We'll let you do it with us, but we haven't actually consecrated. We haven't set them apart. So today, Father, as a people, we want to sanctify and consecrate the gifts you've given us today. We know the pull of our own hearts is away from you and towards our own fleshly desires, God, and we don't want that. And so God, I pray for the graduating seniors in the room today. As a family of faith, we set them apart. We give them to you we ask that you guard and protect their hearts in Christ Jesus. We ask that you give them wisdom from on high, wisdom from beyond their age, that they might know how to navigate the days that are ahead. We pray for our rising sixth graders who are stepping into a new season of life, a season in which temptations rise and 
hurt can rise, but joy can rise as well, God. And we give these sweet boys and girls to you. We give these marriages to you. God, we trust you. So God, may we, through this process of sanctification, experience freedom in the way that you've meant for it to be experienced. And may we have the stories to tell our kids about your goodness and your deliverance and your freedom. In Jesus' name, amen.